Hi church, uh, thank you for watching this video. Uh, if you're unable to meet with us at South Broadway uh, for the next couple of weeks, we hope that this is a blessing to you and you're able to, uh, to watch this and, and uh, sit before the word with us even though you're not with us um, in, in the flesh. Um, renovation is going really well. There's lots of, uh, lots of activity, lots of painting, lots of sawing. It, it's going to be really nice. I think the construction team's done a fabulous job. Um, I think you're going to be really pleased with it. Uh, so continue to, put, to pray uh, that all this goes well and goes quickly uh, so we can come back home and, uh, and all enjoy um, what God has, has blessed us with. Uh, as we gather before the Word, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this exciting time in the life of our church. Um, Father, we pray that uh, the renovation and everything that is, that is happening, Father, uh, serves to further your kingdom. Father, we pray that you give us unity and a love for one another. Father, we pray that, um, that through all that we do, we proclaim your glory and your gospel. And Father, as we gather before your word right now, we pray that you prepare our hearts Send your Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us in our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in the middle of a sermon series on the church. What is the church? Why do we do some of the things that we do? Why do we emphasize some of the things that we emphasize? And today we're going to ask this question. Um, why righteousness? Why godliness? Why is godliness important for the church? Is it important for the church? Uh, we're going to be looking at this in 1 Timothy. Last week we were in 2 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And so pause the video, turn there, or uh, as you're turning there, um, Paul, the apostle, is writing a letter to Timothy, a pastor, a young pastor, early church, one of the first churches in the world. And so he is writing a letter to help Timothy figure out, how do I lead a church? What's important for a church? And uh, so we're going to start out with this question. Do you have any house rules? Any rules you grew up in and your mom and dad said, this is how we do things? Any rules to your house? Maybe, uh, maybe one of your rules is no shoes on in the house. Some houses do that, some houses don't. Maybe that's your rule. Uh, we have some rules at our house. Uh, everyone at dinner has to take one manners bite. One good manners bite. You know what that means? Uh, if, it's a new, if it's a new item that we're eating, it's a new meal, uh, you if it doesn't look good to you, you're not sure you like it, you're not sure you like the smell, everybody has to take one bite for good manners. Maybe you have that rule at your house. Uh, we also have a rule. We have a trampoline, and we have, it has a big net around it. It's a really nice trampoline. The girls love it. We have one big time rule. You have to zip the net before you bounce on the trampoline. You have to. That's our rule. Uh, we have another rule. When little brother is asleep, we have quiet feet. Quiet feet. Because the girls do, 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 run up and down the hallway. Do, 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 do. Quiet feet when brother's asleep. Those are some of our rules. I'm sure you've got family rules. You've got household rules. Um, but you know what? As the household of God, as the church, we have household rules. Now, I know when we say that, we talk about righteousness, we talk about godliness. Uh, sometimes that could get uh, a little weird in our heart. What do you mean there are rules at church, there's godliness, these kinds of things? Because we're saved by grace through faith alone. And so how do, how do rules and how does godliness and righteousness fit in with being saved by grace through faith and not works? How does that work? 
And when we talk about rules and, and godliness and righteousness in church, I think we have a temptation um, to go and, and, and add our own rules. That's one of the problems that we have, right? What are the rules? What does God say we need to be doing in church and act how we need to be acting with one another? Uh, sometimes we're tempted to add our own rules. Um, sometimes we are tempted to overemphasize godliness and say things like, well, if you're not matching up to these standards, we need to kick you out of church. There's some thoughts about that. Like, what do we do when people fall short of those rules? And then we have the temptation to just cast off rules that we don't like. Maybe we claim that we're, we're about grace. And so sin is not a big deal and godliness is not a big deal. Maybe that's a temptation. Well, we're going to see today that there are rules to God's household. And we're going to see why we pursue godliness. And we're going to see how we pursue godliness. So let's read together the household rules of the people of God. Let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And we're going to read halfway through chapter 4. So here we go. 1 Timothy, big number 3, little number 14, goes like this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know, here it is, you may know, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you, Timothy, if you, young pastor Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Okay. Did you see at the very beginning, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how we ought to act in the household of God. There are house rules for being a son or daughter of the Most High God. There are, there's a godliness in which, through, by which the church shows the world who God is. There's a godliness by which we obey our Father and our brother, Jesus. Are you with me? 
Now, so he starts out how, I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to act in the household of God. And so first, when you say, what is the household of God? What is that? What is the family of God? He goes on to say, in verse 13 and 14, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Household of God and the church are the same thing. So it goes back to what we talk about often. Christian, please hear me. If you are not in a church family, you are missing out on a huge part of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. To be in the family of God is to be in a church. The family of God, which is the church. Okay, Those things go hand in hand. So Christian, if you don't have a church family, find one. That's how you're going to experience the fullness of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Household of God is the church. And so how should the household of God act? How should the household of God act? How should the church act? What should we be pursuing? Godliness. Now, now godliness, we might, be, we might be tempted to believe that godliness is just about things I don't do. Godliness is just about not getting drunk, or not having sex outside of marriage, or not being a mean, nasty person. And we think that maybe that covers godliness. But godliness has a wide-ranging scope, wide-ranging applications. Yes, it means that there are things that are not appropriate for children of God. That's true. But there are, not only are there things that we shouldn't do, but there are things that we should be doing. Loving one another. Praying for one another, caring for one another, being humble. These types of things match up with being in the household of God. But it's not just about the things that we do. Godliness, as we will see, is also, also about what we believe. It's about what we believe. So godliness is a good way to define how we ought to act in the household of God. It's what this whole passage is about. Godliness. And godliness could be defined as devout practice and appropriate beliefs. And so why? If that is godliness, why is godliness appropriate actions, appropriate attitudes, appropriate beliefs? Why is that important for members of the family of God? Why is that important for a church? Why is it important for a church to, to strive to act in a godly way? Why is it important for a church to teach godly things, to raise our kids up, to be godly? Why is that important? Well, he gives, us, he gives us three reasons why godliness is something that we should pursue. Why that this is, this is uh, the appropriate actions, the way we act in the household of God. Why? The first thing that we see, he says, godliness is appropriate for the household of God because the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, a pillar holds up the ceiling. A buttress helps hold up the walls. It supports the building. And remember, when we go back and when we talk about what is the church, often in the New Testament, the church is described as a building. We saw that in Ephesians, right? We are being built together like bricks, building the temple of God, the foundation being the Word of God, the cornerstone being Jesus, and we're being built together as a temple for the living God. 
First Peter says the same thing. He says, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. This is the image. And so Paul continues that image with this letter. He says, you, the, we, we pursue godliness because the church is a pillar and buttress. It holds up the ceiling, holds up the walls. And so what is Paul meaning? Just as a buttress and pillars support the building, the church supports the gospel. The church holds up the gospel. The church holds up the message. We're a pillar. We're a buttress. And so taking that motif and that image of a building, the church being a building, Paul specifies it and says that our job is not to be the building in, our, in, our, in itself and everyone come and see us and glory in us as the pillar. No, the pillar's job is to hold something up and we hold up the gospel. We hold up the proclamation of the word of God. We hold up Jesus. Now, why is that important when we talk about godliness? Well, Paul told Timothy, will tell Timothy in chapter 6, he will say, he will talk about teaching that is in accordance with godliness. And so, teaching of the Word of God, teaching of the Gospel, goes hand in hand with godliness. How we live our lives reflect the teaching that we receive and that we obey from the Word of God. I mean, we know this, right? When you go to school and you... And, and you're taught math, or you're taught uh, history, or you're taught science. I mean, we're supposed to take this in and then apply it to our lives. Apply math to your life. Apply history to your life. I mean, that's what teaching is supposed to be about. It's not just about head knowledge. It's about this knowledge bringing us wisdom and helping us live uh, full fulfilled lives as adults. That's why we have our kids, uh, that's why we teach our kids things. And in the same way, that's, why we, that's one of the reasons we teach at church, is that we teach the Word of God, we preach the Word of God so that we may hear and then apply it. And so Paul is saying we pursue godliness because we are pillars and the buttress. We are holding up Christ. We are holding up the gospel for the world to see. And listen, we take the teaching and we apply it to our lives in godliness. How we live our lives teaches the world about the Bible, teaches the world about Jesus, teaches the lost the gospel. We proclaim the gospel with our mouth, and our lives should reflect the teaching of the gospel. Again, he says in chapter 6-3, this is teaching that accords with godliness. And so we hold up the gospel and one of the ways that we hold up the gospel for the world is how we live our lives in accordance with the teachings in which the gospel. And we know this is true. Jesus tells us that. Our actions display what we think about the Bible, what we think about Jesus. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love Jesus, we will act on that love by keeping his commandments. And we do that imperfectly, but that's going to be the goal of our life. So, we love Jesus, and we act like it. The church holds up the gospel 
by proclaiming the gospel and then by living that gospel out in the way we interact with each other and the way we interact with the world. And it's sad to say, but the opposite can be true too. Scripture says, and many will follow there the world's sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So the way we live our lives could make the world blaspheme the gospel. And Jesus tells us, John 13, 35, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. If we, lo if we understand the gospel and we follow Jesus and we are a faithful follower in here, it'll be exposed expressed and displayed out there by loving one another. We are a pillar and a buttress for truth. That is why we pursue godliness. That's why we pursue godliness. A church that does not care about godliness is a church that sends an incredibly confusing message to the world. Jesus is Lord, but I'm going to cheat on my spouse. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is Lord, but we are going to be racist. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is Lord, but we're going to backstab and, and bite one another and gossip and slander. That doesn't match up. That's not in accordance with the teachings that we have. That's going to hold up a very confusing gospel to the world. But when the pillar that is the church and the buttress believes the teachings and pursues godliness in accordance with those teachings, that displays the glory of the Lord. And we, got, we have an even extra way to do that, don't we? That when we fall short, guess what? We can display the gospel by repenting, asking for forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation. I mean, what a blessing that we can declare the gospel even in our shortcomings. So that's the first thing. We are a buttress and pillar of the truth. That's why we pursue godliness. Why we pursue godliness? Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says this have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We pursue godliness because God has promised that pursuing godliness is of great value here and for eternity. We don't just pursue godliness as some kind of checklist thing that we do because that's what Christians do. No, we believe that godliness, above just displaying our obedience and our, our love for Christ, godliness has value. Now, the, the, the difference, the comparison here from Paul is that physical effort, physical exercise, physical discipline has some value here, right? You go to the doctor. You exercise, you eat right. All those things has, have some value, but those things only have a short amount of value. There's going to come a day where I'm, if, I, if I eat as good as anybody could ever eat, if I exercise as much as anybody ever could, and I go to the doctor and take all the vitamins and medicine that I need, there's still going to become a time where I die. That value is there, but it is short. Godliness has value in this life and then for eternity. So train ourselves up in godliness. It has benefits now and for eternity. And we know this to be true, if we just think about it. I bet 90% of the suffering that I endure is due to my lack of godliness. I bet 90% of the hard days that I have, of the difficulties that I experience, much of them are due to my own sinfulness. Problems at home, problems at work, 
problems with our neighbors, problems with our employer, all these things, if we're really honest with ourselves, much of our problems in this life stem directly from my attitudes, my desires, my preferences. These things are out of step with the gospel, out of step with godliness. And so how much value is there to pursuing godliness. And if I can get some of these things on track and under control, if I can, if the Holy, if I, if the Holy Spirit, um, if the Holy Spirit produces self-control in me, how many of my problems in life will go away? Many. Godliness, we pursue godliness because it has much value now. And we're going to see that value for eternity. How great will heaven be when we're all perfectly godly? It'll be fabulous. Number three, why do we pursue godliness? Because people will be tempted to abandon the faith. So again, so people will be tempted to abandon the faith. So again, we talk about teaching in accordance with godliness. And so if people cast off godliness, that's in the same way they're going to be tempted to cast off faith. That could come hand in hand. The way we live our life is evidence of what we believe and the faith that we have. And so if we are not displaying any godliness, if we're not pursuing godliness, that says a lot about the things that we believe. And so Paul says we pursue godliness because there's going to become a time. This is, let's read chapter 4, verse 1 together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so what's happening in these churches is people are abandoning the faith, and when you abandon the key principles of your faith, you're going to abandon godliness. Those things go hand in hand. And so godliness is a problem in this early church. And one of the things that's coming up is that there's false teachings and false beliefs that are affecting godliness, and those false beliefs are beliefs like these. God is spirit, we are physical. There's a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And there's these false beliefs that say the spiritual is good and everything physical is bad. And so that means prayer is good, faith is good. But you know what's bad? Eating is bad. And sex is bad. That's what they're teaching. These physical things that we do have no place in the church. That's what they are teaching. And so Paul knowing that Timothy is dealing with this, he says, listen, this is, going to, this is happening in your church and it's going to continue. We teach on godliness because people are going to abandon their faith. We teach on godliness so that people can understand that no, God has given us gifts to be enjoyed, like good food, like Sex with my spouse. All those things are good, physical things that God has given us. And so we teach people how to live godly lives in accordance with the physical reality that we are in. And so he says, teach godliness. We pursue godliness. We teach godliness so that people will be able to recognize how to live life in accordance with the teachings of the gospel in godliness in the physical realm. How do we eat in a godly way? How do we love our wife and be intimate with our spouse in a godly way? How do we, how do we deal with those things? We teach godliness. So why pursue godliness? We pursue it for those three reasons. 
And so since this is true, since we are the, the pillar and buttress of truth, since, since godliness has promises for this life and for the next, and since there are people who will claim false godliness and preach falsely about godliness, since these things are true, he says, train yourself for godliness. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent myths, irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. And that should be comforting to us. Train yourself in godliness. That means that we're lacking something, right? He's not saying achieve perfection. There's a humility there that says, I need to be trained. Right? I go and I do weight training because I'm not as strong as I need to be. Or I do weight training to, to maintain that strength. And the same is true of godliness. We, we, we have to work at it because we are still sinful people. And so there's a humility here that the church should be filled with. Yes, we, we pursue godliness, but we do so in a humble way. That, hey, we're imperfect. We're imperfect. I, wa I want to pursue godliness, but I'm going to fall short. We are still in training. We're not masters. We're not professional athletes. We still need training. Some of those big, uh, I've been watching a lot of NBA videos, some of those big NBA, NBA superstars, some of them didn't practice at all. And just got to the place where they were superstars and they can come and sit on the exercise bike and yell at other uh, guys as they practice. That was some of the guys. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We always train because we are imperfect. So train yourself for godliness. And so what areas do we need to hit? What areas, what, give me some practical godliness that I need in my life, Paul. And so at the end, he says, put these things in front of the brothers. You'll be a good servant of God to, to preach and talk about godliness, the reasons for godliness, and then the, the applications for the reasons for godliness. And he says this, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, set the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Those are five zones of our life that Paul says these are places that need to see godliness. There are probably more that you can think of, but I think these are a good, these are a good start. Where do we need godliness? We need godliness in our speech. Boy, if we can, that's another area. We talked about it. And how, how, much of my, how many of my problems in life would go away if I can control my tongue? Godliness in speech. Proverbs 13.3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James again says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And then we get to Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. And I know we go, hey, I'm, I'm saved, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, I will be forgiven, but we will still give an account for every word. And even though I'm going to be forgiven, that's not going to be something, I'm, that's not something I'm looking forward to. So our words matter. And so when we talk about godliness, a zone of godliness that we all need to work on is speech. And I think this is of particular importance for the church. 
because we we're in an air, we we're in a zone and growing up in the church, I knew about the big sins that we shouldn't do. And they involved sex and what you drink and where you go and what you watch and, and all those things. Those are the big areas. And, and growing up in church, I knew if I had those covered, everything else nobody really cared much about. And so what you get in that kind of environment is speech can be really covered up. Gossip can be really covered up. I think you should know what X, Y, and Z did to A, B, and C. That's harder to spot. That's harder to call out. But it's just as ungodly. And perhaps more dangerous. And so let's commit to godliness of speech when I'm hearing gossip, something said that is meant to detract, that's meant to decrease someone's social standing. When I hear these things, when I hear ultra-criticism, when I hear uh, gossip or slander, we, we need to snuff that out. We should train ourselves for godliness in speech. We should train ourselves in godliness of conduct. The things that I do, things I do with my body, things I do with my time, the, my conduct should be focused on godliness. 1 Corinthians 10.31 gives us great principle for how I live my life. He says this, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's our conduct. Our con is our conduct bringing God glory. That's a great principle. And we, we, we might be able to lie to ourselves a little bit, but man, if we get right down to it, I know what brings God glory and what doesn't bring God glory. And so, with our conduct... This book here really does give us a lot of guidelines in how we should live our lives. A lot of clear, clear guidelines. Love your enemy as yourself. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Do not be violent. Do not have sex out of, outside of marriage. Do not be greedy. Do not steal. Do not get drunk. These things are clear in Scripture. We don't have, it's crystal clear. And then where, it, where I might actually wonder where Scripture doesn't talk main, main and plain about something that I'm dealing with in my life, when I ask, what should I do? Go back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Will it bring God glory? And if there's a question of whether I should do it or not, fall back on that principle. Does this bring God glory? And if not, just don't do it. You know, just don't do it. And if it does, or if you can do it to the glory of God, if it can make Jesus look good, reveal, the, reveal how valuable God is, then it's something that we can, we can pursue. And so that, those are some principles that we, can, that we can follow in our pursuit of godliness and our conduct. He says, Pursue godliness in love. Train yourself up in godliness of love. Be an example, Timothy, for the people in godliness when it comes to love. We, we know this. It's clear, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Church, we must love one another. Not phony love. Real, long-suffering, forgiving, steadfast love. It's hard to do in church when we don't get our way and when things are... When, 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 Bad things are happening in church, or, or that person that I just can't stand is in my Sunday school class. Those things, it's hard, but it's pursuit of godliness. It's training in godliness. It's, supposed to, it's not supposed to be easy. 
Love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. This is conduct of godliness. How do we talk, how do we talk about people on the other side of the political spectrum? Are we talking about them in a godly way? Are we talking about them with love that accords with the teachings of the gospel, which accords to godliness? On Facebook, am I complaining about people? Am I complaining about X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C? On Facebook, am I, am I speaking in such a way that shows that I am loving to people? All these things are in accordance with godliness. He says, faith, trusting God, being faithful to one another. Faith is in accordance with godliness. Teach shall be an example of faith. And then impurity. Purity means moral cleanliness. Am I living a life of moral cleanliness, of godliness? These are things that we pursue. And he says, abandon. How do we, how do we train ourselves in righteousness? Hit those areas. Those are some of the areas that we fall in, right? Faith and love and purity and conduct and speech. Those are the areas that we need training in and all of us need training in. What else should we do? He says, how do we train ourselves in righteousness? He calls, he calls him, abandon silly myths and train yourself in godliness. Abandon silly myths. Remember, the silly myth that was going on was you can't have sex with your spouse, you can't eat good food. That was the silly myth that was going on in that time. But, but silly is not, the same way that, is not the same word that we use for silly. Silly does not mean not harmful. So it's not just a little kid being silly. Oh, that's just him. I don't have to pay much attention to it. No, silly does not mean what we say it means. It's not used here the way we use it. Silly here is meaning myths that are told like gossipy people whispering back and forth together with nothing better to do than stir the pot. That's what is meaning by silly. Because it doesn't mean harmless, and we know it doesn't mean harmless. Because Paul, at the beginning of the passage, describes these myths that the church is dealing with, describes them as myths being taught by spirits and demons. That's anything but silly, harmless. So he says, abandon these myths. What exactly are myths? I think we can define these myths this way. The latest controversy, the latest reason to be offended, the latest news item that gets my blood boiling, that we hold to religiously, and that distracts us from the gospel. I think those are myths. How many myths do we have floating around? How many myths tempt us, tempt our, our focus away from Christ and away from the church and away from the gospel and on to other things. Abandon myths. How do I know if I've fallen into myths? Well, here's, here's maybe one way that we can see if we've fallen into myths. If it uh, gives us an unbiblical cause for disunity in the church. That's a myth. If it's splitting a family, if it's not the gospel, if it's not a biblical mandate from God, main and plain in Scripture, that is splitting a family, that is a myth. If it's something that steals our joy, if I wake up in the morning thinking about it, if I go to sleep thinking about it, if, I'm just, if it's just robbing my joy, putting me in dep oppression, Depression, that is a silly 
myth. Abandon silly myth. How do we train in godliness? Abandon silly myth. And finally, my favorite one. How do we train ourselves in righteousness? Enjoy the good gifts of God. How do we train ourselves in righteousness? Pursue joy in the things of God. I love this. I love this. Because again, when we talk about godliness, there's always a, a dark cloud that's like, oh, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I'm supposed to do this, and it's all about training and endurance and all these things. Godliness is about finding joy in the things of God. God wants you, Christian, to be joyful. We're a buttress, we're a pillar holding up Christ to the world, and if we are not joyful, we are not doing our job. Now there are things that are very serious about what we do. And there are times to be very focused on the serious things. But if we are living a, a Christian life that is devoid of joy, we are not living a godly life. There are things that God has given us that we should find happiness in, we should find joy in, and people should see on our face that we are living a good and joyful life. That is a great proclamation of the power of God and the power of the gospel, to be joyful in Christ. Malachi 4.2, I love this. Malachi 4.2, God says, For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, joyful in the sunlight. I've been in the barn for months and months and months, and finally somebody comes and frees me. I go leap out in the hills and valleys and in the sunlight and with the good grass and the good water and just oh how beautiful is that feel it's like going from winter you know how bleak winter can get and 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 gray and nasty and snowy and cold in that first day of warm sunny weather where you don't need your coat you can have short sleeves you can go outside in the garden you can take a walk it just feels great that feeling is what God wants for His children, that joy that we have. And we see this. We see this problem. He says the godliness that's going on in the church, part of the godlessness going on in that church, Timothy, is that people are not enjoying the good gifts of God. People are saying, you can't have sex. You can't eat good food. And that means you're godly. No, being godly is about enjoying the good gifts of God. People are shocked when I say this. Have sex with your spouse. That's godly. That's godly. Paul commands Christians to have sex with your spouse. Don't go forever without having sex with your spouse. Have sex with your spouse. Pursue that intimacy. Enjoy that gift of from God. And again, our single brothers and sisters, we say this often, listen, sex with a spouse is not in the top 20 gifts of God. It's a good blessing, but you have blessings from God that make the top 10, top 20. Okay? So don't feel like God has not given you some top 10 gift of the Spirit. No, singleness is a gift in itself. Married folks, enjoy that gift of God. Enjoy good food. Eat barbecue. Eat barbecue. You don't have to. But enjoy a hamburger. Enjoy the good things that God has given us. 
That's in, that's in accordance with godliness. Isn't that good news? God is not the fun police. He has given us tremendous godly gifts that we can pursue. We can pursue in godly ways. Now, he gives us direction for how we pursue these joys. You know, we're not to be gluttons. We're not to have sex outside of marriage. There is a time, Paul says, where we can step back from having sex inside of marriage and, and have a... There are times for that. There are guidelines and guardrails for these things. But God has given us good things. Pursue them. That is part of being... of pursuing godliness. And so then how? How do we do these things? Is it on our own? What is the motivation behind these things? Who do we look to? He says this. Here's the mystery. I love when Paul talks about mysteries. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, I want to be godly. I want to pursue godliness for all the reasons that we talked about. What's the mystery? What's the secret? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is the secret to our godliness? Looking to Christ, loving Christ, pursuing Christ, being near to Christ, following in Jesus' example. That is the secret. He is the mystery to godliness. Without Jesus, we cannot be godly. This is true for a few reasons. The three reasons why Jesus is the key to our godliness. He is our example. It says, the mystery of godliness. It was a secret for so long. We didn't know how to really be godly. And then Jesus was manifested. Manifested. That means he was brought to the earth, given flesh. We see godliness in the flesh for the first time. In Jesus. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This means he was resurrected by the Spirit from the dead. He was vindicated. He was the essence of godliness. And we see that vindication in his resurrection by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. We think that this means when he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil, and he proved his God, perfect godliness through that temptation. And then after that temptation, he says, the angels came and ministered to him. They were, he was seen by the angels. If we want to see godliness, you don't look to me. I'll let you down. You don't look to Paul. Those are not our primary examples of godliness. You don't just look to Timothy. The primary perfect example of godliness is the person of Jesus Christ. He is our example. And a second way that he is the mystery of godliness is that we all fall short. We will not be perfectly godly as we ought. We will not act in such a way in church as we ought to act. We will all fall short. And so Jesus is the practical example of our godliness. And then Jesus, in his death, burial and resurrection has promised to credit to our spiritual account his own godliness. So the transition work, transaction worked like this. I gave Jesus my sin. When I came to him in faith, I gave him my sin and he gives me credit for his perfect godliness. So how do we, 
How do we do these things? We look to Christ as our example for practical godliness, and then where we fall short, we know that we are still credited as perfectly righteous and godly because of his godliness. He's the mystery of godliness. And then finally, lest we think that we find our hope in being godly, Paul tells us this in verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So here's the picture. We do, we pursue godliness. We toil and strive for godliness. For all the reasons that we said today, we toil and strive for this, but not because our hope lies in achieving godliness. Our hope lies in God, who is our Savior. And so we must fight the temptation to pursue godliness in a way that receives acceptance from God or receives our salvation. We are not saved by our godliness. We pursue godliness after we are saved by grace through faith. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit loves us and will guide us in what's best for us. And what's best for us is pursuing godliness. Do you see how that works? Godliness is not what saves us. It is evidence that we are saved. Are you with me? An evidence that is imperfect, that we'll fall short, that we'll need to be trained in, but good works is evidence of faith in Jesus. I hope you're with me. I hope that's clear. It's so very important. And so finishing up with that thought, W. Ian Thomas says this, For godliness is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but the consequence of His capacity to reproduce Himself in you. Not self-righteousness, but Christ-righteousness, the righteousness which is by faith. So we pursue godliness as a church to proclaim to the world that Jesus is good, to, so that our actions match the teaching that we proclaim, so that we can receive the promises that God gives us here that we will still experience in eternity. And we do this by looking to Christ, who is willing to give us His righteousness and fill us with His Holy Spirit so that we may imitate Him. Let's pursue godliness, because we have a great God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we are a church that takes seriously sin and righteousness and godliness, not because we want to earn something from you or not because we want to look like a the big bad Christian, but Father, we want to pursue righteousness and godliness because that's what you want for us, and in a way to say thank you to what you've done for us, and in a way that we are, our actions might reflect the teaching of the gospel. Father, may we, as Trinity Baptist Church, be a buttress and a pillar of the truth that is matched in the way we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you very soon.